1: This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall.
2: necessarily. I will tell you we are back because it's obvious that we are. I am Kevin Randall and this is A Different Perspective. We are broadcasting live and in color for those of you who uh, are interested in that sort of thing. I am joined today by Francis Ridge, who is in the process of moving. So he has my great (laughs) sympathy for that. He um, hosts the NICAP website and we're going to ask him how he ended up as the NICAP website host here. Uh, but so that you know something about him, he headed a seven-man investigative team for Indiana for the for NICAP uh, and was designated, which was designated, I guess, Indiana unit number one. In 1972, he accepted the position of state section director for MUFON in Hillsboro, Illinois, and continued... Uh, geographical studies in the nine-state area within the ODR project, and we'll find out what the ODR project is. I would have told you if I'd have known. In 1973, he set up a research and investigation team under MUFON as a state section director for Posey, Vandenberg, and Gibson counties. Thank God I could pronounce all those names. Uh, he continued this It's actually the GDR project. I don't know where the ODR came from. The GDR Mm -hmm. project until the end of the year, which included a massive 1973 uh, sighting wave, which had an awful lot of occupant sightings for those of you who were paying attention. He set up the Saucer Grapevine with scattered observers, police and sheriff and state police, airport controllers and civil defense people in a tri-county area with a monthly bulletin and published a telephone number and media coverage directory for all of that. The station was designated as a UFO filter center. He obtained his first computer in nineteen eighty six and I bet that was really a crappy computer. Because I ob- have <laughs> I obtained one about that time and it uh what always cracks me up. It had uh what sixty four K of memory and my computer now plays music at 128 K per second. So you can imagine there wasn't much um memory there, and I have of course degenerated into another nonsensical rant about something here. Uh, He continued to work uh, with his computer for a database which listed over 4,000 entries for the regions covering Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky and Tennessee. You left out Iowa, you creep. No, I didn't mean that. Uh, (laughs) Indiana's MUFON state director and a field investigator for the Center for UFO Studies set up state section directors and trained and tested 150 potential field investigators in Indiana's 92 counties. The Indiana Group rapid deployment team consisted of approximately 30 active field investigators throughout the period, and he investigated hundreds of cases. He reopened the Mantel case in January 1974, completed a report in his book in 2008 with the help of Jean, and her last name is pronounced how? I, I believe it was Keywitz. Okay. Dan Wilson and Brad Sparks. Two years later, he wrote the report on the reinvestigation, the Mantell incident, the anatomy of investigation, a 60-year-old cover-up. And I welcome Francis Ridge, whom I have now taken up most of the first segment talking about. Francis, welcome to the
3: program. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad to be here. And you know why I'd rather be here than anywhere else.
2: <laughs> Absolutely, because we just are a lot of fun. And we have uh, no, we won't say that. Anyway, we are a lot of fun. Uh, We've only got like two minutes left before we have to take our first break. Uh, And a question came up uh, talking to, to Rob McConnell about this. He said he thought NICAP was defunct and was surprised when I was talking about NICAP here. What's the story behind the? Uh, it's um, I think it's uh, www.nicap.org.com. What's What's the? Uh, I mean .org. Forget the .com part. What What's the story behind the website? Quickly. Uh, how is it affiliated with NICAP? How did you end up with it?
3: Well, it uh, It was kind of crazy. I uh, I was, you know, really into NICAP uh, earlier, and uh, I felt like why isn't NICAP being represented on in the web, or on the web, and with all what all the information that they had collected. And uh, I was sort of like a, a guy that was doing a lot out in the field, but I wasn't very well known. So when I got into doing computer work and doing a lot of emails and uh, web work, uh, I decided to set up the site, and uh, there were all, there was a lot of resistance, because they didn't know who I was. So I put up... I put up what I call the NICAP interlink, and what it was was a, a NICAP homepage, and then it linked to a lot of the good cases, but it wasn't typically a NICAP site. Well, it was a NICAP site, but it was just a forerunner of it. Well, let me break and in I- here.
2: Let, let me break in here to say we're going to have to take that break that I keep bragging about. Uh, The website is www.nicap.org and you can access that and more information will appear at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. We will be back right after this so please stick around.
1: Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi Fi, you can still listen to the Zone radio show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilde Wiaka, X 1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exone broadcast network by calling 213 401. Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365.
2: As I promised just moments ago, we would come back with Francis Ridge, and we have come back, and Francis Ridge is still here with me. I don't know why he hasn't hung up and stomped off in anger, but he's here. Uh, The question that we were talking about was this NICAP organization. I mean, the NICAP presidents on the web and what I guess I was interested in is NICAP was an organization that began in the 1950s with Don Kehoe and their mission seemed to be to inspire congressional investigations into UFOs and basically accuse the air force of hiding information. It went defunct in, I guess the mid 1980s around that time. So, um you have use of the NICAP name. I I assume that you have permission to do that.
3: How did all that come about? Well we got uh we got permission from the people that actually own the rights and that's KUFOs. And ah. uh, once we once we proved that we were gonna do something worthwhile and all my heroes were working with me, it was just unbelievable. I mean one at a time we would get different people that would help support us. And they were, uh, a lot of them were reluctant because, you know, here a a person was getting involved in a nightcap site. And, you know, there's been two or three people tried to do that with different nightcap sites and they were terrible. So, you know, they were a little leery about it. But once they found out that I was serious about what I was doing and that my ideas were going to work and uh, started getting a lot of support. And then I set up the A-team, which has got about 32, 33 people, all my heroes again. And uh, it's been uh, it's been one heck of a ride. We've been very very busy. Um, we're well, all do getting you, older. So do you do you investigate?
2: Does NICAP does NICAP there investigate uh, UFO sightings? Do you do that, or you uh, just collect collect
3: information? We just collect information, but we're also trying to uh, be in a position where if somebody calls and they do, uh, we get the report to the right people or get the sighting to the right people but we're not having much luck with that
2: well you know Uh, what's what's interesting um not that long ago and the reason i hesitated i was trying to think was a week ago or 10 days ago something like that you had sent out a an email i guess to the a team which asked about a specific sighting that took place in may of 1954 um, uh, in clovis new mexico and it was yep. supposedly one of the blue book, uh, unknowns, unidentified that Brad spark had and Brad sparks had in his big listing. Yep. And, uh, I took a look at that and it became a, uh, 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 posting on my blog. Boy, I'm just having trouble with thinking of anything today posting on my blog about uh, our research. is sort of a chasing footnotes type thing. And the blog of course is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And, uh, we chased down that sighting um, and, and found out that the uh, original sighting we were looking for probably didn't exist in Clovis,
1: no. Woo! Isn't this fun? What's this ride called? It's the stock market this year. Here comes another drop. Yeah this it's scaring my portfolio do you have a better idea yeah have you heard of masterworks no it's the
2: app that lets you invest in an alternative asset that more than doubled the s&p 500 from 1995
0: to 2021 all you need is a phone just go to masterworks.io and use promo code fun see important disclosures at masterworks.io dc the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your Quarter Pond. I'll try your filet of fish There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer.
2: Thanks, Echo, But there was one from Oceanside, California in... Right. Uh, a few days earlier that, that was a very interesting site and was a project blue book unknown. Does that sort of thing happen frequently or is that just something that was kind of a bizarre situation because of that specific sighting and where it went?
3: That was uh that was sort of a, you know, a little bizarre, but we do run into all kinds of weird stuff. You know, we uh, will be looking for one thing and find something else and, in some in some cases, you're looking at what was originally listed as a blue book unknown, and maybe there's a newspaper clipping in there, and and it's not worth pursuing. You know, you wonder why they even considered it a a blue book unknown.
2: Well, the original the original
3: posting that you sent out was from Clovis,
2: New Mexico, about two guys seeing a disc shaped craft hovering over railroad tracks.
3: Yeah. And and the reason and, why I went after that, the reason why I went after that, was because. Uh, we had a, a something that is indelible in my mind in 1973 during that massive siding wave, right about the time of the uh, coin case and the Pascagoula incident. Uh, well, well, well,
2: let's just, for those that don't know, the coin case is the uh, coin Parker abduction case from Pascagoula in October of 1973. So, so people have a reference for that. So uh, you were looking at something that related to that and. Or the the wave of 1973 and it brought this brought this up.
3: Yeah, it was uh, it was it was a phone call on a Saturday morning that my wife took and um, I was at work and she called me and she said, "Man, you got to get home and uh, call this guy back." Is a conductor from the L&N Railroad that had an incident this morning, and I, I actually couldn't wait to get home and call the guy and he described this incident where the train was stopped, an object was following the train. And they thought it was another train. is what they thought it was because they could see the light. The conductors in the back could see the the light following them. But uh, they were lo- they were loaded down with coal and they were having a little bit of trouble lumbering into Evansville, and had to to come up on this tall hill called Belknap Hill. Belknap hill, and um, they were uh, they had an engine overheat and had to stop. And the signals on the track were telling them that there was. A train behind them, or something was behind them, and uh, when the object backed up, uh, the train signals reversed, indicating that the train was backing up, and uh, they were able to restart the engine and go up the hill and make it on into Evansville. But they this was a, this, found this.
2: This was in 1973, right?
3: Yes, and okay. it was uh, it was an incident where the the uh, UFO actually caused the blocking system to show. Something was on the track or near the, you know, interfering with the um, electronics of the blocking system signal, and you know, it's it's one thing for this to happen, but it's another thing for it to happen during a massive siding wave where, you know, and uh, if you grasp the two, you could you could say, well, there's something really strange going on in this this county as well as the rest of the world, you know. And um, so you investigated this sighting from 1973. Yes, I was I was uh, I was on top of it the, the instant you know the day that it happened so uh, it wasn't hearsay and um, it, you talked it, to the people involved. Yes. And what did you conclude? We concluded that something was following the train and it was affecting the diesel, which, as you know, uh, you know we were always told that diesels were unaffected. In fact, there was one case where a diesel and a conventional tractor were, were uh, overflown by a UFO and it affected the, the conventional but didn't affect the diesel. So we were, th- we were assuming that this was an attempt that didn't quite work, but it was yet an attempt to stop a diesel vehicle. And make a long story short, we found out from some friends of mine who were accident investigators that this train was, was uh, taken down to Alabama and investigated by the Air Force
2: did you ever find any file on it from the air force no, or never did do you, we don't know what organization would have investigated it or
3: no but ever since then anytime i find a case that involves railroad tracks or trains we make you know we uh, make a list of those make an actual file on the site and that was the why i was looked that was the reason why i was more interested in that than i normally would have been Let me me, me point
2: this out. This was 1973, as you say. Project Blue Book ended in 1969 and the Air Force stopped investigating UFO sightings at that point, according to all the press releases. And so we now have a sighting from 1973 that suggests the Air Force took the, the, uh, obviously the diesel engine as opposed to the entire train, but the diesel engine to somewhere in Alabama for an investigation.
3: Right. Were you Oh yeah, not- that was that was wasn't the first time we ran into something like that. There was a case out at NORAD that uh, they had a lockdown, and there were special people brought in. And uh, in 1975, Blue Book was not in business either. So, well, I, when
2: you say that, the, you know, they took the train down to um, Alabama. Yeah. Were you able to find any documentation to support that, or was that just what you were told by the people from the railroad?
3: Uh, I was told that by the uh, accident investigator or uh, an accident investigator that was that was privy to what was going on. And he was very uh, he was very uh, cautious about telling me. I wouldn't even be telling you now, except that it happened so long ago that I'm not too concerned about it, but uh, oh, he he walked in my place of business and And told me that, and um, I was very surprised. And, of course, we'd like to have been able to document it, but it was coming from a very good source. But he didn't tell you what base in Alabama? Uh, No, but uh, there is a maintenance facility down there. He probably did. He probably told me. But at the time, I wasn't too concerned about uh, that. Should have been.
2: Well, you know, that's something that that strikes me that, that you, since you bring it up, and I, we'll get back to this in a moment, but I have noticed that as we all have gotten older, things that weren't important to us then to, to write stuff down or get information on, uh, things, things we would routinely do today, you know, we just let things lapse because it didn't seem important at the time. Uh-huh. And you're finding the same sort of thing then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, Um, I I can think of a dozen follow-up questions that I would have had that I would have investigated immediately. But I'm looking at it from in 2017 after a lot of UFO investigations as opposed opposed to 1973.
3: Yeah, and also there was a lot going on at the time. We were uh, actually had a reel-to-reel recorder going that was hooked up to the phone. So when the phone rang, he'd pick up the phone and the reel would start up again and recorded the whole a schmear of sightings that were going on. We were getting phone calls left and right, and uh, our equipment here, the Madar, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the Madar equipment went off right during the peak of that wave, and right about the time of the the time that the, uh, the uh, NORAD went on, uh, uh, I forget what alert that was, because of the Arab-Israeli War, uh, it was just all happening all at once. And uh, I actually was. I was actually very nervous because I felt like at the time we weren't really prepared for it. But when I look back, I'm thinking, my God, we did pretty good considering,
2: you know. Well, we should point out. We should point out that this uh, wave that you're talking about started in late September, 1973, and went through about the first two weeks of November, of 1973. And there were an awful lot of sightings with the craft on the ground and the craft uh, uh, creatures being seen outside the craft. Yeah. Um, some of those, I think. Well, one of the cases that I investigated at that time was the Pat Roach abduction from uh, Utah. and I'm now absolutely convinced now uh, that she had an episode of sleep paralysis based on everything I know today. Mm -hmm. But back then, I mean, it fit into the 1973 wave of sightings. So that was that was quite an intense period of of UFO uh, activity, whatever the UFO might have been. It was quite a bit of activity. Um, So you were. Uh, I guess investigating sightings in the Indiana area from in
3: 1973. Oh, yeah. yeah, we had uh, we had quite a bit going on l- locally too. We had, uh, you know, like I said, the phone was ringing off the wall. And and do, do you think what should I do? How do I follow that up? And about the time you start to think, the phone rings again, and you know, and and, and the sad thing is, a lot of those uh, investigations were conducted through the mail he was in the form out he didn't you weren't able to just get up and go um,
2: or, or, or skype with somebody
3: yeah yeah uh, Kinda or kind of or, reminds me of Rupeld and he's uh His uh, involvement with the Washington Nationals
2: (laughs) That would be be Ed Ruppelt who was the uh, chief of Project Blue Book at the time. Uh, We're going to have to take another break here, unfortunately. I cannot believe how fast the time goes when we get into this stuff. The uh, website for Francis Ridge is www.nicap.org and it is a site loaded with information. Some of the Project Blue Book files are listed there so you can scan some of the earlier files and some of the later stuff as well. The whole thing isn't there yet, but there's an awful lot of good information on the site from a lot of different arenas and a lot of different um, places giving you much better information about UFOs than you get on a lot of places on, on the web. Uh, Francis Ridge is hosting that uh site and has been around UFOs forever Um, the the case that we were kind of talking about the the UFO in Clovis New Mexico over the the tracks which got us started on this is you can find that at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and how we got involved in all of that and we will be back right after this
0: For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net.
2: I am joined by Francis Ridge, he of the NICAP website at www.nicap.org. We were talking about the UFO wave of 1973 and some of the things going on. You'd mentioned Ed Ruppelt and the 1952 wave of sightings and the anecdote that goes along with that. Uh, Fill us in because I'm sure a lot of people don't understand. I understand it, but I'm sure a lot of people don't understand what you meant that Ruppelt's there in Washington, D.C. and has to go back to Dayton, Ohio and all of that stuff. So tell us a little bit about that.
0: The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter Pounder. I'll try your filet fish There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer.
1: With no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Charles Barkley in a pickup game. We'll take Barkley. Ha! First pick. Sorry, kids. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. With no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? Okay, here's the plan. Pass me the ball every time. This is banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.
3: Well, it, it was chaotic here. and The phone was ringing off the wall and you didn't know what to do because uh, you could we, we would fill out a uh, form M which was a half a page message slip and you'd no more get it half done or done and you'd Lay it aside, and the phone ring again. So you had, to, you had to decide which ones to go after the next day and how to investigate it. And uh, it was chaotic. And when I brought up the, the uh, little anecdote about Rupelt, he was trying to get to investigate one of the most important sightings of, of all. And he couldn't even get a flight. He had to, I think he had to take a cab. Kevin, you know more about that than I do. But it was well, I, about that well, ridiculous.
2: He, he was actually in Washington, D.C. when the sightings broke. Uh, doing something at the Pentagon, and he was scheduled to go back to Dayton, Ohio on, on orders. And then he read about it in the front page of the newspaper, and he's trying to get permission to stay in Washington, <laughs> D.C. to investigate. And they're saying, no, no, if you if you don't go back to Dayton, you're going to be AWOL. So he had to go back to Dayton, Ohio. to, uh, and, and I mean, here's the top guy Supposedly investigating UFO sightings for the United States Air Force. The sightings are in Washington, D.C. He's there in Washington, D.C., and couldn't get an (laughs) extension on his orders, which I found out a little bit outrageous. Um, So he's back in Washington or back in Dayton trying to gather the information. But I, I think the other thing is this is the summer of 1952, and there's just literally hundreds of sightings going on all over the place. And it's the year that they, I think Air, the Air Force, Project Blue Book, collected the most sighting reports, which I think worked out to about 1,500. And of those, 303 were unidentified. So it was just a massive wave of sightings at the time. And he was, uh, RuPaul was trying to get all of this organized and, and couldn't do it. So he's got to go back to Dayton, Ohio, to, to do his work, <laughs> rather than stay in Washington, D.C., <laughs> where the investigation should go on. So you're now interested in you, UFO sightings relating to railroads. So you come across this Clovis, New Mexico thing, and that inspired you to send out a, I guess, an email to the A-team and explain a little bit about the A-team.
3: Well, they're, uh, as I was mentioning a while ago, these are people that, uh, that I gathered together over, a, over the a period of a few years and they were all my heroes. And, uh, i uh I would have never been able to do uh what i what i was what I've done with the with the nicap site without them because even though I had clues about this that and the other I needed details and I needed to know uh where to go you know or knew who or go to who knew the answer so uh Jan Aldrich was one of the first people that was on the a team and then Don Berliner. And uh, Joe Carpenter, rest his soul, he was always a big help. And then along came Keith Chester with his Foo Fighter uh, expertise. Uh, Jerome Clark, Peter Davenport, and then later Paul Dean, who I didn't even know till about four or five years ago. Uh, Tom Dooley, Robert Durant, another one that's no longer with us. Uh, Carl Feint, and as you can see, each one of these has a... Sort of an expertise, in Carl. Well, uh, Carl but I Fain.
2: think I think I think a lot of the a lot of listeners don't you know, don't know who these people are. Jerry Clark's been on the program, so they understand that he's sort yeah. of the unofficial historian of of the UFO field. Um yeah. Jan Aldridge has been around forever and investigated a lot of stuff, and he's involved in um, uh, is he involved with the Sign Historical Group uh, with Barry Greenwood and those guys? Yeah. And you know, they're doing they're doing historical research into UFOs. Um, Tom Dooley was working with um, Dennis Stacy, who was w- one time the editor of the MUFON Journal, and they did a lot of work on the great famous um, Del Rio UFO crash. That I think they they seem to think it was the result of a civil air patrol airplane crashing during the Second World War, as opposed to something really? happening later. I think it's uh, basically made up by. Um, by, by by Robert Willingham, but that's a whole other yeah. argument. So, I mean, the people that you've that you mentioned are people who've been around the UFO field, and if you've been around UFOs for very long, you know who, who, who the people are and what they've done and what they've accomplished. So you assembled a team of people who had expertise in a great many different aspects of UFOs, but also yeah. other areas of expertise. Um, may have been, uh, uh, I don't know, Dennis Stacy, for example, was the... Uh, editor of the Mufan journal for a long time uh, and Jerry Clark of course was an editor at Fate magazine and he was the uh, the editor of the Kufos International UFO reporter so he had a, you know a, a great background in ufology and that sort of thing so the A team is a group of people and you just sort of blast out these questions to them to see if anybody uh, has an can answer something about the question is that what yeah. you do
3: yeah, there. I got more information out of the A-team than I did the whole uh, NICAP research team because the research team is a, a group of a lot of people that uh, uh, are not as well-versed. And in fact, here's Kevin Randall, author, investigator, and researcher in the Roswell. You're one of the A-team. Mark Rodiger, Center for UFO Studies.
2: Robert UFO Rodiger is the Scientific Director of Center for UFO Studies. Yes and that sort of thing. Um, but I guess the thing that struck me on this latest one, which, which grabbed my interest right away, was it, it, it claimed it was a Blue Book unknown. And, yeah. and Brad Sparks had put together a long list of UFO sightings um, and a lot of it made up from the Project Blue Book Unidentified, but there were other things in there that did, didn't quite fit. And so the first thing I did was I went to my Project Blue Book Index, uh, which isn't too, too thick um, um, three-ring three binders, but it's you know, broken down by month, by year, and then month,
3: so it's easy, and sometimes by days, given the number years Yours was outdated, the one you were looking at.
2: Well, no, my, the Blue Book Index is from Project Blue Book, so I looked at that, and there was no listing oh. in it, and then I went back to the Blue Book Unknowns, which was Brad, Sp- yeah. Brad Sparks' yeah. thing, and I looked at that. Okay. That was outdated, and I said, yeah. you know, this the numbers don't track here. And then then you'd yeah. you'd send something to me. Well, I should point out, and it's maybe a little bit disjoint for the people, but the first thing that w- they came up was uh, Mike Swords had responded. Oh yeah, and, and said that um, the case, the Clovis, New Mexico case, went back to Otto Biner, who was. Uh, one of the earliest people involved in UFOs, <laughs> maybe not the most credible of sources, uh, done a number of books. And, and that traced back to him, but it didn't trace back any farther. And I looked in Project Blue Book Files, and it wasn't there. And so we, we went on from that point. Um, and then you, I went back to the, the Brad Sparks Project uh, Project Blue Book un- unknowns, and I couldn't. I it would. I had a different case number.
3: You know, I'm trying to remember yeah. exactly the sequence here. And well, the said, reason for the reason well, for that was every time he puts in a new case, it changes the 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 totals. But that doesn't. That's not an actual case number. So,
2: well, there was a, there was a number associated with it, which I think was 1018.
3: Yeah, and, but that wasn't uh, a case number. In other words, if he added uh, two or three in between there somewhere. That would have boosted that number on his next catalog, so it wouldn't have been a valid number. But,
2: but 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 I looked at the date, looked at the date, and there was nothing there. And I got to thinking, right. well, there's got to be something here. And I found uh, a blue book entry in the in the blue book index from Oceanside, California, which I think Brad may have alerted you to about the same time I discovered. It. Is that right, Brad? Yes. Brad also yes. said that. Yes. And so we, we looked at that case, which is completely different, has nothing to do with Clovis, New Mexico <laughs> or anything else. Right. But that one is actually in the Project Blue Book files, and it is an unidentified case. So I, I guess the point of all of this is you put out a um, – and, and all of this is laid out at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and I think it's called the Chasing UFOs, the Oceanside – Clovis case It's it should be up on the first page when you get to the blog but uh, it it um, took us about 24 hours to actually answer all the questions
3: oh yeah I to, got a little hairy there for a while didn't it
2: it, well, it was very interesting because you had all these people making input to which led us to point a to point b to point c and we finally oh, yeah, got I love it and, and that was the thing that I love, too. Exactly. We did an investigation, all of us sitting in our armchairs, basically, um, going through documentation that's now available online. Uh, most of the Blue Book files are online. The index is kind of hard to access online. Uh, Brad Sparks documentation and everything else. And we were able to uh, de- determine that the Clovis case probably doesn't exist.
3: Right. Now, for someone looking for a case on the NICAP site, there's two ways to do it. You could type some information in a common NICAP and usually go right to it. Or if you know the year, you can go to the chrono and and the date. You can go right to the case and click on it. Um, and then I, something else I want to point out to our listeners, uh, the, one of the main things we do is we, t- we take a case that's worth uh, presenting and we have a case synopsis and we make a directory for that case. And then down below, we have the documents, the actual documents. And we started out, we made some terrible mistakes. We we, uh, linked to particular documents or web pages that had those documents, and then several years later, those sites went down. So after a while, we learned the hard lesson, and we started making uh, PDF files of everything we do, and that's that's about where we are now. We've got uh, PDF files for every important case that we've come across or had to redo. And uh, it's, a, it's a regular mine, you know, gold mine out there, I think.
2: Do you uh, remove cases from the, the NICAP site when there's there's a solution or it turns out to be a hoax? Or
3: do you uh, put a we no We We leave them there because somebody in the future is going to run into it again. And when when they find it, they will see that we either rated it lower or explained it.
2: So there there's kind of it becomes kind of a footnote to the UFO phenomenon. there. Yeah, yeah.
3: Yes. Oh yeah, we've been criticized for putting cases up, uh, but I feel like if, if someone in the future is looking for a case, even if it's hokey, they've got to find out what how we uh, what our position is on it. And so we yeah we uh, we leave them up there. However, the, there were some uh, as I'm going through 1954 right now, uh we have found some that I'm actually too embarrassed to put up on the side. <laughs> 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 I mean, they are they're almost like uh George zadansky type sightings and uh, you know, if 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 someone saw a a creature and described something other than a than a the typical alien uh, you know there are a list of all different types and shapes. So we will put we will put that up. But if it is really hairy and it's got all kinds of uh, messages and uh, stuff that you would just would not associate with our 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 system of belief or understanding, uh, I, I very I hesitate to even put it on the site.
2: Well, I was doing. Um a presentation for the local library and I was going through some of the uh, photographs or or drawings, illustrations of creatures. And what what struck me is, and especially from South America, I found the mutant, 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 whatever they called it in um, this island earth, a a, a mutated person, creature. uh, Oh, yeah. One of the aliens, the... uh, the the flying saucer people from Earth versus the flying saucer also appeared in some of the sightings from South America and you're yeah. just thinking well I, gee, I wonder where they got their inspiration for those sightings yeah. obviously it was the, the source was the movie we're gonna have to take another break I am with Francis Ridge here his website is. Um www.nicap.org and uh, you've learned a little bit about how to access it where it is and what you can find out about it we'll learn a little bit more from Francis Ridge when we come back right after this and remember if you want to know what happened at Roswell take a look at Roswell in the 21st century I need the extra 25 cents for the for the uh, uh commission on that so thank you much we will be right back after this so stick around
1: Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere,
0: 24-7-365.
2: As I have said many times, I am joined today uh, by Francis Ridge, he of uh, the NICAP organization, the website, the www... uh, W.NICAP.org, which has lots of good information on it. We've been talking UFOs and how the site came about and some of the interesting things going on and what he tries to avoid uh, in putting up on the sites. And I I, I think what you say about having to put up some of the really craziness on the site so people who are looking for information about it can uh, learn something that maybe gives a different perspective about it. Uh, yes. Is there is there um, uh, some cases that I guess are kind of in the mainstream that you find to be less than accurate that uh, there's quite a bit of information about or different dis- discussions about?
3: Uh? Uh, not necessarily, but what we try to do is take the ones that we really consider important and put them in a special file so people don't have to look so hard for the ones that we consider. But what's bad is your, uh, your, your uh, debunkers want to know what you think is the best case so they can make a shooting out of the situation.
2: Yeah. I've, I've always been hesitant to give a list of the top 10 cases, best UFO cases, simply because mine keeps shifting about. (laughs) And, and I know that we disagree, I think on the Mantell incident that there was the uh, air air guard pilot who was killed chasing a, uh, uh, UFO back in uh, 1948, January of 1948. Um, you seem to think that that may have been a um, a real UFO, I guess, a, a, a alien oh, yeah. spacecraft.
3: <laughs> yeah, the only thing I can say, especially with what little time we have, is to read Brad Sparks' uh, a- analysis at the end. But Channel 14 wanted to do a story uh, about a local incident, and of course that wasn't really local for Evansville, but Louisville was, was was fairly close. And I told them that this is not the one we ought to do. But they were they were set on doing that. So the way I did it was I'm like everybody else. I was considering the case solved a long time ago, and we started a re-investigation. And believe me, within three months, it was starting to look a lot different. Um, we found uh, instances of where the uh, his wingmen lied to protect themselves, and we, of course, we have uh, uh, a string of sightings indicating something was going on from Ohio to Kansas City. Something was being observed, and I guess the big thing was the object that was being described was 400 and something miles away, and to assume that that was the Skyhook, you know. And, and nothing nothing was adding up. In fact, uh, well, I, I, I encourage everybody to read the report. I, I,
2: in, in defense of the wingman, I understand why they lied about it, because they'd violated uh, regulations. Uh, regulations at the time said, and I think they still say, you can't fly above 14,000 feet without oxygen. Um, and I don't think people in the 1940s understood how rapidly uh, your cognitive abilities degenerate under the lack of oxygen, I think the at 29,000 feet your active consciousness is like 15 seconds, yeah. and and at 25,000 feet it's something like three minutes. And when you look at the report, you find out that Mantell and his wingman had been above 20,000 feet for a while, and he said he was going to go up to 25,000 feet and circle for a while and see if he could if he couldn't get any closer, um, he'd circle for 10 minutes. Well, he didn't have 10 minutes of useful consciousness left by that time, and I think you know that explains what happened to him. Uh, so the, the real- only
3: thing I the only thing I could suggest because I would have to actually look it over myself to get into more detail, but. I would read what Brad said and see what you think. Uh, but uh, there was a lot of things that came out that uh, really surprised me changed my opinion uh, and and that your report, of course, is
2: available at your website, yes, so they can they can go to Mantel case and they can read all the evidence that you looked at by them.
3: Right. Uh, it'll, it'll, it'll be a hardback, uh, I guess uh, not a hardback a paper paperback trade copy or something that Mufon's going to put out, they want to produce it?
2: A trade paperback, I think, is what we refer to it as in the industry, <laughs> for,
3: for whatever yeah. it's worth.
2: But there's been a lot written about Mantell, and I think the Air Force and it was, the by that time it was the Air Force, but he was an Army pilot uh, for the, um, flying a, I think it was an F-51, and I say that because they were changing the designation of the aircraft and I think they nice. changed it by then. Um yeah. but he wasn't that familiar with the airplane and I think that's you know one of the problems we have to look at when you look at the case he wasn't he wasn't trained as a fighter pilot during the war he was a, a transport pilot he received a distinguished flying cross for his actions during the Normandy invasion which means he was a valorous man and a very good uh, pilot but he got into fighters and I don't think he understood the problems with high altitude operation and I don't think a lot of people did in 19, 1947, from from what I could
3: gather. But that's what one I, of the. What, in- I, what I'd like for you to do, though, if you read Brad's account or his analysis, I would like to know what you think of it afterwards. Uh, that'd be pretty cool. Uh, um, but I, in Brad's defense on the the blue book, though, I would uh, I want to point out that even though there was a lot of unknowns that probably didn't belong in the catalog, uh, he ended up with uh, over 1,500 what he considered to be unknowns. And here's a guy that does definitely does not believe in ETH at all. He does not believe in aliens at all. And he, uh, he uh, came up with, well, I think it's 1,700 uh, cases that he considered to be true unknowns.
2: Well, I think it really doesn't need any defense. Um, when I looked at the Blue Book unknowns, I thought it was just the unknown cases from Project Blue Book, but it clearly goes beyond that. It's other cases as well. Oh, yeah. This should have been.
3: This should have been listed. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and if you look at the project Blue Book Files, and I've said this for decades, that they had a category called insufficient data for scientific analysis, where they threw a lot of the cases, so they kept them oh, out yeah. of the unno- unknown category. But there is no solution. Insufficient data for scientific analysis is not a solution. It's merely right. a categorization, and that kind of gives you a flavor of what Blue Book <clears throat> was doing at the time.
3: Now, the, uh, the Blue Book cases on the NICAP site, if they don't have a BBU number, if it just says BBU, that is one that's uh, been placed in the catalog. But if it has a number like 2208, that's the actual case number.
2: And what, 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 what I should point out here is in the somebody went through the uh, Blue Book Index and numbered all the cases, starting with one going through 12,000 in some. And I'm thinking, I, I wonder what E4 had to do that uh, and keep track of that without well, a computer <laughs> yeah exactly it's just a real pain in the butt but i mean it, it, it's, a, it's a useful thing so you can look it up by the date you can look at by the number if you have access to the project blue book roles you can look it up that way um, you don't have all the blue book uh, f- cases on the on the an ICAP website
3: no uh they are actually they are listed they are actually listed in the chronos. All of them are listed in the chronos, but there may not be links to them. In other words, it will be identical to what you see in the catalog. But if there's an active link there, you can go to the case where we have the synopsis and the documents.
2: Well, don't you have a, a part of it that's a Project Blue Book index, so you can kind of scan some of the Blue Book files?
3: That's, we use that uh, Project Blue Book website for that. But I, I usually don't do it. That's why I have others do it. They know how to manipulate it, how to locate files quicker, locate information quicker than I do. So, well, well, so I'm doing other things. So, you know, I always put it out there and somebody will like Brad or Robert Powell will uh, bring it up and, you know, send me an attached copy of that particular document.
2: So what you've really done is tapped into kind of a UFO network here that helps you update the project or the NICAP website that keeps uh, things current. Yes. And that is helpful for those who are just getting started in UFO research. I think if you're going to look at a UFO case, one of the first places you should start is the NICAP website to see if there's something there on it. But it goes beyond just Blue Book. It's got cases up into the, um, in, into the 21st century, I should say. Yes. Anything you want to add before we go?
3: The only thing I, I, there's a couple things I would add. Uh, The 1952 wave that uh, Rupelt was caught up in, and then the 1973 wave that I was caught up in those are waves that we thought we were unprepared for and we're going to wait for the next one
1: <laughs>
3: we, but in the air force case they did have another wave they had 1957 but I don't think they were more prepared or any better prepared because of the and, leadership
2: and let's not let's not forget the what the 64 65 66 where they had a lot yes. of sightings too uh, yeah But by that point, they had the University of Colorado coming in and they were kind of plumbing everything off on that and talking to one of the Blue Book officers at the time. He said that they were just Blue Book was just looking at cases in the Dayton, Ohio area around Ohio and other UFO sightings were being investigated by local UFO officers at uh, various Air Force bases. And they may not even get a case file on it.
3: Right.
2: Uh, Fran, we've run out of time. I can't do any. I can't do any more here. We're just flat out of time. I'd like to thank you for your help. Thank you. We can you for, just do it again. We can do it. We certainly will do it again <laughs> and talk about the things going on. As I've said many times, it's www.nicap.org. Thank you much, Fran Ridge. You're welcome. And for those of you, uh, as I say, there's stuff that appears on uh, my my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And the th- one of the things we were talking about, the Oceanside case, the Clovis, New Mexico case, there's the whole chronology on how that investigation. Uh, took place over 24 hours. I think he gives you an idea of what all was going on. For those who are interested, I've got a book coming out. It may be out now. It might have been out for three days already uh, called Encounter in the Desert. It's about the Socorro, New Mexico sighting. And it was kind of an outgrowth of uh, discussions I had on the program with Ben Moss, Tony Angiola, and uh, Ray Stanford about uh, the Socorro UFO landing in 1964 with Lonnie Zamore and some of the things I learned about that. And puts it in a better perspective, as opposed to necessarily a different perspective. Uh, Also take a look at Roswell in the 21st century, which will give you a little bit different perspective on the Roswell UFO case. All of that being said, um, we will return in about 167 hours with another episode of A Different Perspective, so you'll just have to wait for us to come back. Uh, Thanks for listening.